Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host, and this is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, April 12th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, uh, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time. I'll try to monitor that and periodically answer any questions as they come up. In these weekly live streams, uh, we keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. Um, and here's what I plan to cover today. This was a quiet week at the court. The court has been in recess between its March and April oral argument sessions. So there were, um, uh, since, since last week's live stream, there were no, uh, the court did not have a conference. That means there's, uh, no new orders list, no new cases granted for next term, and there have been, uh, no new opinions. So, so pretty quiet. Next week, however, uh, the week of April 16th, the court will be hearing oral argument in six cases. So the, uh, main focus of tonight's live stream will be to, uh, give a preview of each of those six cases that are going to be argued from Monday to Wednesday next week. Um, but first, before we get to that, a quick look at some of the week's other Supreme Court-related news. Uh, the first thing I wanted to touch on very briefly is uh, just a, a minor milestone this week. Uh, Tuesday, on Tuesday, that's April 10th, that marked uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch's one-year anniversary on the court. A, a year ago, uh, April 10th, was when he uh, uh, took the oath of office and uh, was sworn into the court. So, uh, unsurprisingly, that's, that's prompted a lot of, um, reflections and writing about, uh, his first year on the, on the court. The general consensus so far is, uh, no real surprises. Uh, Justice Gorsuch has performed more or less just as was expected. Of course, there's a huge divide over whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where, uh, uh, people uh, stood on Gorsuch at the time of his, uh, his confirmation hearings. Um, he has, uh, in his role as a, uh, the new justice on the court, he has very kind of self-consciously positioned himself as a uh, constitutional originalist, that is, someone who believes the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original meaning, and as a, a textualist, uh, that is, someone who believes that when interpreting statutes, the meaning of the specific language used by Congress takes precedence over things like the general statutory purpose or the legislator's intentions. And those those are the positions that he, he advertised very prominently during his confirmation hearing. So again, no surprise that he has uh, kind of uh, um, really stuck to this, uh, this uh, um, uh, position in his first year on the court. As expected, he has also tended to side with the court's uh, more conservative wing, uh, in those cases that, that do divide along, um, these kind of ideological lines. And that places him most often in the company of Justices Thomas and Alito. Justice Thomas being, uh, generally considered the most strongly originalist justice on the court. Um, Justice Alito, by contrast, doesn't really, um, uh, identify as an originalist, but he's, uh, often considered to be the most conservative, uh, justice on the court in terms of, uh, political I- ideology. Um, a few things to keep in mind when uh, when looking at uh, this first year is is uh, in, as far as the opinions go, we really have a pretty small sample size so far. The court's work tends to be backloaded toward the end of the term. The, even the, they they start hearing oral arguments in October and they hear arguments from October through April, but a large number of um, opinions are issued in the last two months of the term in May and June every year. 
Um, so this year, even though we're already uh, into April and we're about to begin the last argument sitting of the term, um, the court has only issued a, a, a pretty small um, uh, portion of its total total uh, cases. It's only gone through you know a little more than a quarter of the expected cases it's going to decide for this term. And last term, Gorsuch was only on the court for the last uh, argument session, the April argument session, and uh, only had one uh, majority opinion out of out of that. This term, he's only issued uh, two majority opinions so far this year, which puts him in the same ballpark as other justices um, so far. But uh, based just based on the numbers and the fact that the majority opinions tend to be roughly equally divided among the justices, we should expect about five more or so uh, majority opinions from him in the next two and a half months. So that would you know almost uh, almost triple his current um, uh, output of majority opinions. So we'll have a lot more to go on by the end of the term. Last term uh, in that last uh, um, argument session that he was that he was sitting on last term. Uh, Justice Gorsuch issued an unusually high number of separate opinions, that separate concurrences and dissents. Um, I, it, it, one possible explanation for that last term was just that he had a lot of time on his hands. He was there uh, on the court. His colleagues were all working on uh, their backlog of cases from earlier in the term, but he had only one majority opinion to deal with um, and uh, ha- had a lot of time on his hands to to write those extra opinions. Um, so far this year, that he, he d- doesn't look like he has a particularly uh, an unusually high number of uh, concurrences and dissents. But again, that may change as we get uh, toward the end of the year and more of the opinions come out, especially if there are more, um, as is often the case, more of the closely divided uh, opinions that really divide the court um, come down toward the end of the term. Um, looking at the opinions, the decisions that Gorsuch has issued so far, um, the, his, his uh, three majority opinions, uh, two of them were, were unanimous. His first opinion last year was a unanimous p- opinion, uh, statutory interpretation issue. Um, he also had a unanimous opinion in one of the court's original jurisdiction cases. Those are cases that are filed directly in the Supreme Court, and this was a water rights case between Texas and New Mexico. Um, that was a case that didn't really get much attention or, or interest either. Um, he did have one... Uh, closely divided majority opinion, a five to four case where Justice Sotomayor was in the dissent uh, or wrote for the dissent. And that was a statutory interpretation case called Murphy. Um, but uh, a few other cases are interesting just because uh, they, they, they may give um, some indication of, of where he differs uh, from Justice Thomas, who is, uh, again, I, uh, the, his uh, um, closest uh, uh, ally on the court uh, so far. Um Earlier this term, uh, there were two cases, um, both uh, criminal law cases. One was a case called Class v. United States, which was a criminal procedure case about the uh, the effect of guilty pleas on the right to appeal. Um, and in that case, he was in the majority in that case, uh, a six-justice majority, while Justices Alito, Kennedy, and Thomas were in dissent. So he was, uh, uh, in that case, uh, Justice Gorsuch, sided with the uh, justices um, finding for the criminal defendant in that case, and uh, Justice Alito and Thomas were on the other side. The other case, called Marinello v. United States, was a criminal law case about um, the interpretation of a uh, criminal provision of the tax code. And here, Justice Gorsuch was in a seven-justice majority with Justices Thomas and Alito, again, in the dissent there. So one area where he has distinguished himself from Justice uh, Thomas in particular – 
this term is is in these this criminal area where where it, you know at least so far it appears he's uh, more sympathetic to um, the rights of criminal defendants uh, so far. Um, so that's an interesting uh, area to watch going forward. Now, of course, with the the small number of opinions that he's uh, cases that he's been involved in so far, there's many areas of law where Justice Gorsuch hasn't um, joined any opinions yet. Uh, there's n- no cases have come out the. Um, that he's been involved in. And there's many more areas where he hasn't written anything yet. Even if he's joined on to an opinion by someone else, he hasn't written on his own. And so there's a lot of areas of law where, where, you know, you know, it'll, it'll, uh, still maybe be a while before we have a really fleshed out sense of Justice Gorsuch's views and, and where he comes down on, on, uh, various, uh, legal issues. Um, a few other, uh, interesting things to watch for going forward. At the um, early earlier this term, there were uh, rumors that were getting a lot of um, a lot of attention about uh, allegedly uh, sharp conflicts that Justice Gorsuch was having with uh, several of his colleagues, but especially uh, Justice Kagan. Um, and the, these uh, the rumors were were suggesting that he had uh, through his. Uh, his um his behavior on the court so far had had uh, was was alienating some of his colleagues and really um coming to um uh to to some sharp disagreements with justice kagan uh i think you know so far there there's reason for skepticism about uh about these um these reports they were anonymous and 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 really uh, unsourced and in fact, there were almost identical rumors uh, floating around uh, about other justices when they newly joined the court, including Justice Kagan when she joined, um, which appear to have been uh, completely unfounded um, later on. Um, and no one talks about those supposed clashes with Justice Kagan anymore. And also, uh, Justice Gorsuch had a, a long uh, track record of uh, judicial experience. He served for more than 10 years on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, which was uh, an ideologically diverse court. Um, it had a, 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 almost a roughly even split of um, appointees from uh, uh, Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. And he was apparently uh, well-liked by his colleagues on that court, and there was no reports of a, uh, any... Um, real personality clashes there. Now, it's always possible that he rubs some of the justices the wrong way, but there's just no real uh, strong evidence one way or the other so far. But it's, you know, something to keep an eye on um, as things go forward and more uh, opinions start coming out of the court. And we might get a better idea of um, where the justices are lining up and see if there's any particularly strongly worded opinions, uh, either from him or from uh, one of his colleagues directed at each other. Um, there's been speculation recently. One of the one of the notable things about this term has been the slow pace of opinions. Uh, the the very uh, the, the court is kind of behind its typical um, output at this point in the year and has quite a few opinions uh, that it still has to um, still has to hand down in the in the uh, remaining weeks of the term. Um, and some have speculated that you know the one big change is uh, the addition of Justice Gorsuch and that maybe uh, he has some something to do. With uh, this this slowdown, uh, which you know, could potentially be because he's uh, writing a, a large number of separate opinions, concurrences, and dissents um, that might require uh, more response or or back and forth with the other justices. Um, maybe uh, he, he has uh, engendered more sharp disagreements uh, because of the specific legal positions he's been taking that require more back and forth and more uh, drafts and responses. Um, you know, or this, this could be, uh, again, this is pure speculation, could be completely unfounded. Uh, again, at the end of the term, um, maybe we'll have a little better sense, uh, when we see the opinions coming down and we see where the, uh, 
um, you know, whether he does uh, have a lot of separate opinions, whether there do seem to be a lot of uh, uh, particularly sharp disagreements. Um, but it's just uh, something to, to, to watch for. Um, one particular area um, that will be particularly interesting to watch for is the Fourth Amendment, um, the protections against uh, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. The court has heard several Fourth Amendment cases this term, and we're still waiting on opinions from them. There was one case called Carpenter about cell phone tower location data, uh, whether the, the government needs a warrant to obtain that. And there were two cases involving uh, automobile searches. And at oral argument in all of these cases, Justice Gorsuch was was um, really seemed to be pushing a property rights based approach to um, to the Fourth Amendment to deciding the the reach of the Fourth Amendment. Now, this is an approach that some justices have uh, kind of um, played with in the past, including uh, the late Justice Scalia, uh, who who um, uh, decided uh, some opinions along those lines. Um, but it is different from kind of the, the standard, the court's standard approach in these Fourth Amendment cases, which uh, usually focuses on, on uh, what the court refers to as the re- reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case and whether with these cases and whether Gorsuch um, pushes for for uh, um more more opinions that, that, that go use this property rights based type of reasoning. Uh, if there's if you know if this view does gain any traction on the court, a move away from the reasonable ex- expectation of privacy toward a more property based approach could have uh, some pretty big implications for Fourth Amendment law. It'll be in- interesting to see um, if anything comes of that. Uh, in some of those arguments, also these Fourth Amendment arguments, Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor seem to be. Um, uh, very much uh, in sync with each other in terms of their um, their questions to counsel, and so it'll be interesting to see whether that shows up in the opinions as an interesting little um, alignment. And again, uh, we'll have a better sense uh, at the end of the term uh, if any of these uh, um, dynamics that seem to be um, at work at any oral arguments if they actually play out in the way these cases get decided. So um, that's that's just a some brief thoughts about Justice Gorsuch's first year and and things to think about going forward. One more brief update um, relates to the travel ban litigation. This is the uh, litigation related to um, the Trump administration's um, ban on uh, nationals of certain countries uh, entering the United States. And um, earlier this week, that on Tuesday, April 10th, um, one of the countries that had been listed on the uh, the travel ban uh, list of, of countries whose nationals were restricted from entering the U.S. It was uh, Chad, the African nation of Chad. Um, on Tuesday this week, it was removed from the, the travel ban list. Uh, so nationals from Chad are no longer uh, barred from entry under under the travel ban. Now, Chad had been added. It was kind of a late addition to the uh, travel ban countries. It was added in September in what's been referred to as Travel ban 3.0, the, the kind of third revision of the uh, the travel ban orders, um, and that is the version of the travel ban that is uh, currently being challenged at the Supreme Court. Um, and so it's just uh, this is an interesting development shortly before the oral argument in this case. Um, the addition of Chad to the banned companies had been cited by some as evidence of problems with the travel ban country designations. Chad had been, it was kind of a surprise because it was a major ally in Africa in uh, the United States' counterterrorism efforts. Um, and it was allegedly added to the travel ban, at least in part, 
due to uh, actually a shortage of passport paper which prevented Chad from supplying the United States with sample passports. Now, the United States has also said that there were other factors involved as well, but that was uh, uh, supposedly one of the factors was a, a paper shortage that led to the uh, country being added to this list. Um, however, it, it, it's likely also that, that uh, supporters of the legality of the travel ban will point to this as, as uh, evidence of the, the um, effectiveness of the periodic review uh, called for in the travel ban that uh, countries that are on the travel ban can be removed from it uh, after being reviewed periodically. Um, but uh, in any case, the travel ban litigation is going to be argued on um, April 25th at the Supreme Court. That's the last day of oral argument for the term. And I'll be discussing that litigation more next week when I preview the second week of uh, April oral arguments. Uh, so with that out of the way, let's move on to next week's cases. Uh, as I said, there's six cases. Uh, there are two each day from Monday through Wednesday next week. And so I'll just uh, start at the beginning and and, and work through um, each of these six cases to talk a little um, about uh, um, what's coming up next week. So the first case that the court will be hearing on Monday is a case called Wisconsin Central v. United States. Um, and this is a case about uh, the... Uh, uh, it's, there's a statute... Um, dating back to the Great Depression, called the Railroad Retirement Tax Act, um, and this is a uh, it's a it's a statute that that's the um, the railroad industry's uh, equivalent of the uh, the the FICA Social Security uh, taxes that are that are paid by um, by most uh, workers in the, workers in the United States. Um, employees of of the railroads pay instead of pay, paying FICA taxes, they pay taxes under the this. Uh, Railroad Retirement Tax Act, or RRTA, and it is similar to FICA in many ways. Um, in in, in that uh, the employers, the railroads, withhold money from paychecks uh, that go into uh, uh, a retirement uh, fund. However, um, there's there's different language um, than than uh, Social Security with uh, with respect to the basis uh, for the the. Uh, um, the tax withholding. So the the uh, more familiar uh, FICA it applies to uh, to wages, which are defined um, to include uh, all remuneration for employment, including the cash value of all remuneration, including benefits paid in any medium other than cash. So there's a very broad definition of what wages means, uh, and and basically in kind benefits and things like that count as wages and have to be valued um, and taxes withheld on the basis of uh, uh, Taxes have to be withheld um, to account for those uh, those benefits. Now, the RRTA has a different uh, uh, different statutory language. Um, instead, it requires withholding a percentage of employee compensation, and then compensation is defined as money remuneration. So, the question here is is how how broad is the term money remuneration? And the specific question here is. Do um, does the exercise of stock options count as money remuneration? Uh, and how this uh, came up is the railroads um, have sued uh, the 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 government for a refund of taxes paid on exercise stock options. So the, the government has said that these exercise stock options, when someone exercises stock options, then um, that counts as uh, money remuneration, and the company has to withhold taxes on the basis of that. And that's been challenged. And the railroads have argued here. That um, the the difference in language between uh, between the RRTA and uh, FICA uh, is is crucial, and the, the RRTA does not 
unlike FICA, does not explicitly include benefits. And so they argue that uh, money remuneration just, just doesn't include um, non-monetary things like stock. Uh, they, they say that the word money needs to be given some meaning if they they could just say remuneration if they if if this was meant to be um broad and include any kind of um uh equivalent but by including the word money uh that uh necessarily limits it to um to to uh, something less um the the government argues uh on the other on the other side that basically stock is basically a cash equivalent it's easily valued and converted to cash um, they also say that there's been basically over time uh, a convergence between uh, FICA and the RRTA, and there's been an intent that uh, as much as possible these statutes should be construed to be in sync with each other. They've been amended over the years to be more similar. Um, and the government also points to a um, an exception to uh, in the RRTA, an exception um, uh that's specifically in the uh, in the statute for for what's known as qualified stock options. Now, qualified stock options are a type of uh, option granted exclusively to employees that have special tax benefits. Those are not the type of stock options exi- uh, at issue here in this case. But the argument is that given that Congress had enacted a specific exception for qualified stock options, that implies that non-qualified stock options must be covered by the uh, the phrase uh, money remuneration or else that would have been unnecessary. Now, the, the railroads uh, argue, uh, on the, the other hand, they say um, that uh, this later added exception for the qualified stock options doesn't change the basic meaning of, uh, of money remuneration. And they also, but they also uh, uh, make an argument that these, that these qualified stock options can sometimes involve cash payments uh, as well as the stock. For example, if there's a partial share that someone is entitled to under a qualified stock option program, uh, they may be paid in cash and that the Congress may have been wanting to cover that. Uh, so there's the arguments on both sides about the scope of this money remuneration, and that's, the, that's what the court's going to be figuring out in that case. Now, the next case, the second case that's going to be argued on Monday uh, is a patent law case, a case uh, related to damages in patent law. Um, and it's specifically, it's a case about extraterritoriality, and that's the, uh, the um, uh, what effect uh, U.S. law has outside for actions that are happening outside of the, uh, the, the, the territorial United States. And this is a case that's called... Um, I, I don't know the uh, the pronunciation of this case. Western Geco v. Ion Geophysical Corp. I've heard it pronounced West, Western Gecko, but uh, based on the uh, the history of the name, I, I think I think it's likely Western Geco. We'll see. Um, but it's uh, the issue here is um, uh, patent law is 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 generally territorial. Different nations have their own uh, patent um, uh, patent procedures. And if uh, someone, a company inventor, wants to obtain a, a patent, if they obtain a U.S. patent, it generally, in general, it only protects against patent infringement in the United States. If you want your invention to be protected elsewhere, you have to also seek a patent in those other jurisdictions, in Europe, in Japan, and other important patent jurisdictions to get protection in those places as well. Um, and so uh, if someone has a, a U.S. patent and someone outside of the U.S. is uh, creates um, – uh, a copy of their invention, um, they generally there's no uh, there's no um, claim of infringement. However, um, there, there's uh, there's a uh, exception here. You can't create an infringing pro- product to sell abroad. The creation of that product in the United States, even if it's being sold abroad, is uh, still infringing. Now, 
in order to invent to prevent uh, circumvention of uh, of that rule, there's there's a, a a specific provision. There's there's two provisions that are really at issue here in this case. But the first is a provision that's called Section 271F um, of the uh, the Patent uh, Code here, and and the the relevant language here is. Whoever supplies from the United States all or a substantial portion of the components of a patented invention in such manner as to actively induce the combination of such components outside of the United States in a manner that would infringe the patent if such combination occurred within the United States shall be liable as an infringer. So in other words, if you create the components of a patented invention and then just ship them out of the United States to be combined into that patented invention outside the United States, then you're liable just as you would be if you had created the infringing product completely within the United States. Um, now, the issue the, the, here in this case is, is another provision called Section 284, and the language here is, the court shall award the claimant damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, but in no event less than a reasonable royalty for the use made of the invention by the infringer. So that's the damages provision. So it says, um, uh, damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, uh, no event less than a reasonable royalty. So the issue is normally, um, and 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 uh, let me give a little factual background in this case, and to 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 kind of uh, set this up. So this company, Western Geco, has patents on technology to that's used to map the ocean floor. Now this is used for oil and gas exploration primarily. Um, they have these uh, equipment that gets uh, um, dragged, uh, trawled behind a. Uh, a and, and, it, and uh, it maps the ocean floor, and then that data that it uh, generates can later be used to try and t- determine um, uh, likely places to uh, to drill for oil and gas. Um, but this company didn't sell or license its technology. Um, instead, it uh, performed these uh, ocean floor surveys itself. So it had its own ships that it used to uh, to survey. So it would contract with. Um, uh, oil companies, for example, to perform these service surveys, uh, to look for, um, uh, places to, to drill. Now, the, the other company involved in this case, Ion Geophysical, they created an imitation system, a system that, that di- basically did the same thing. And they shipped the components of the system from Louisiana, um, they shipped these components abroad to be assembled into uh, an infringing system. Now, as uh, I noted above, this this uh, is infringement under Section 271F by uh, shipping the opponent the components to be assembled abroad uh, th- that uh, qualifies as infringement under that provision. Um, so, but the issue here is what kind of damages um, are available under this? Now, normally, if um, someone in Western Geco's position, someone who uh, um, Uses its own technology to uh, to uh, generate profits. So here they were um, contracting to uh, perform these uh, these ocean floor surveys. Um, if someone else uh, stole their technology, um, say say it was domestic, someone someone else within the United States copied their technology and was performing those surveys, um, they would be entitled to a royalty, a reasonable royalty for the uh, the the. Um, Use of the of the the patent, but they would also be entitled to lost profits for the surveys that they they uh, lost out on the the business they lost out on because someone else who stole their patent um, took their business away. Um, so the question here is, what about um, in, in this case where it's international? 
are those lost profits still available? So no one is disputing here that they're entitled to reasonable royalties for um, the the actual patented invention. Um, but the question is, what about the lost profits due to Ion Geophysical's uh, use of this technology to get contracts that might have otherwise gone to Western GECO? Um, and the the argument here is, on one side, the argument is the statute says it's, it provides damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, and the foreign profits were derived from the infringement, so that that uh, they should follow just as if this as if this was a domestic infringement. The argument on the other side uh, goes to something called the presumption against extraterritoriality, and what this is is the presumption against extraterritoriality is is a, is a rule of interpreting statutes that says basically laws are presumed to only apply within the United States unless Congress specifically specifies otherwise. Now, this is just a presumption. It's not an absolute rule, but it recognizes that governance is is uh, is very territorial in nature. Usually when Congress passes a law that's regulating a certain type of um, behavior that's uh, barring someone for doing something or uh, regulating exactly how certain uh, actions have to be taken, um, it, it's assumed that they're talking about in the United States, they're not trying to regulate the entire world uh, any, anywhere and everywhere. Um, sometimes Congress is trying to reach broader, but they uh, generally will specify when that's the case. So this presumption, uh, there's a presumption that when a uh, statute doesn't say otherwise, it only applies within the United States. Now, um, the the argument here by Ion Geophysical is that this damages provision, Section 284, uh, this presumption against extraterritoriality should apply. So um, that lost profits... Uh, doesn't, doesn't, shouldn't, uh, um, apply to, uh, lost profits, uh, from outside of the, the United States under this provision. Now, Western GECO argues that this, uh, presumption against extraterritoriality shouldn't apply here because the, the underlying liability provision, that 271F provision that says that the, uh, ion geophysical is liable for the, uh, infringement, that already explicitly deals with the extraterritoriality issue and, um, the, the damages provision just fo- follows from that. Um, the On the other hand, Ion Geophysical argues that the lost profits here result entirely from foreign conduct. Um, the the uh, um, Yes, the, the components were shipped out of the United States, and that's clearly covered by uh, 271F. They were shipped out of the United States to be uh, assembled into an infringing product, a product abroad. However, the lost profits came from uh, f- entirely foreign conduct, foreign bids for survey work uh, that was uh, separate and followed after the infringing shipment of the components out of the United States. And so they argue that, that to, in order to um, um, pull that entirely um, foreign conduct into the, uh, the the damages calculation. Congress should uh, should have should be required to uh, clearly speak to uh, to uh, whether this is supposed to cover foreign conduct. Um, one issue that that kind of the ion ge- geophysical um, brings up here is 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 a, a concept known as comedy. That's that's comedy with a T C O M I T Y. Uh, that that's the idea of. Uh, the kind of the respect that's owed by one nation or one legal jurisdiction toward other legal jurisdictions. Um, when laws are applied extraterritorial, uh, extraterritorially, that can result in conflicts of law or conflicts of policy between two different jurisdictions. 
Um, in this, you know, patent context, for example, certain U.S. inventions might not be patentable in in uh, foreign jurisdictions. The patent laws are in different jurisdictions of the world are not exactly the same, and something that's patentable in one place may not be somewhere else. Also, foreign jurisdictions may have uh, different measures of damage or different legal procedures for determining infringement. Um, so the argument is that that uh important reason for the this presumption presumption against extraterritoriality is um to avoid these types of conflicts and that the concept of comedy that is disrespect for other nations suggests that um it kind of counsels against an interpretation or application of US law that would cause conflicts with foreign law or policy um and ion geophysical argues here that the that the plaintiffs uh argued approach western geco's argued approach here would allow someone to bootstrap a minor us infringement into uh global damages that they wouldn't otherwise be entitled to and they give an example for example if there was a um a uh a company with a uh, us presence who prototyped an infringing invention in the united states so an invention that infringed a us patent patent they prototyped in the united states but they later manufactured and sold that uh, in, that invention completely outside of the United States. So manufactured and sold it, for example, inside Korea. Would that company be entitled to damages for infringement, even if, uh, for example, Korea had uh, had uh, um, looked at that same patent application and had denied a patent on that invention, finding it not patentable in Korea? Would they still be entitled to all of these damages because they follow from the U.S. Um, infringement? Uh, in the first place. So that, that's kind of the argument they make that this damage provision should be seen as um, a separate instance that requires uh, the application of this um, uh, presumption against extraterritoriality. So that, that's the issue there. So moving on, uh, let's go to the next case. Um, on Tuesday, the first case on Tuesday is a case called South Dakota v. Wayfair. Now, this is a case that's gotten a lot of attention. Um, it's it's a, a case that's specifically, it's explicitly asking the court to overturn a previous case from 1992 called Quill Corp v. North Dakota. Um, and what this case d- deals with is it deals with um, the uh, taxation of, um, of, of uh, sales taxation of um, Internet uh, sales. Now, the, the, this 1992 case, Quill, the court held in that case that states can't require retailers that had no physical presence in the state to collect state sales tax. And that was actually based on an earlier case, a 1967 case called, uh, uh, it was called National Bellis Hess, the Department of Revenue. And the, the, this is under, it's a, uh, uh, a doctrine known as the Dormant Commerce Clause. And just briefly what this is, the Commerce Clause is a provision in the Constitution that gives the federal government the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Now, the dormant commerce clause is is a a something that an idea that that says um, by implication because the federal government has this power to regulate interstate commerce, the states are prohibited under this this concept called the dormant commerce clause. That the states are prohibited from impeding this interstate commerce, even if Congress hasn't specifically acted in a particular area. Um, and the 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 uh, um. So under this con- this concept, they they said that when when uh, a uh, a retailer has no presence in the state, that they they are not the state is not allowed to require them to collect sales tax. Now, what states do generally, states that collect sales tax, um, in order to uh, to um, collect taxes on these out of state sales, they actually impose 
typically most states will impose a tax on state residents to pay a use tax. So anytime a state resident purchases something from out of state and doesn't pay sales tax on it, um, technically they're supposed to pay a use tax to the state that's basically equivalent to what they would have paid in sales tax. In, in practice, these taxes are extremely rarely paid. Most people who buy things from out of state never pay these use taxes, even if they see um, the uh, uh, spot for that on their on their take state uh, um, income tax forms that requires them to pay this use tax. Most people never pay that. It would be incredibly burdensome for the state to try to enforce that, um, and and it would be incredibly politically unpopular if they took any aggressive actions to enforce that. For example, by trying to audit um, people, uh, you know, residents' uh, credit card purchases in order to find out if they've been buying things from out of state that they need to pay taxes on. So, in practice, the states just don't collect these taxes. Um, from these out-of-state uh, purchases. So what happened here is South Dakota passed a law to specifically challenge this Quill rule, and a number of other states have done the same thing uh, to a greater or lesser degree. Have passed laws that that uh, seem to conflict with what is uh, allowed under Quill, but uh, but there's a a um, a belief that the court may be ready to reconsider Quill and, and overturn it. Um, now, the South Dakota's law is is limited. It doesn't require. It doesn't apply to all out-of-state sales. First, it only applies to retailers who have either a hundred thousand dollars worth of sales into South Dakota or uh, at least two hundred separate sales. And so, in that in that way, it doesn't burden businesses that have a very small South Dakota footprint. And it also prohibits a retroactive application. So. The, the, in South Dakota, they, they can't, they're not allowed to go after retailers for back taxes under this theory. And the theory here is that Quill is outdated and should be overruled. And the, the idea is that Quill was, was decided in the, in the era of mail order catalogs. There was, um, it was before there was, there was any, it was, this, uh, you know, 1992, so there, there was no e-commerce basically. Um, and mail order catalogs, it was just far less significant as a, as a, a, a uh, in terms of quantity. Um, and there's been a lot of changes since Quill that kind of undermine uh, that position. First, there's been the explosion of e-commerce, which has caused a hit on state tax revenues and also a big economic impact on certain brick-and-mortar stores. Um, the second argument is that the, the burden of collecting these uh, sales taxes by out-of-state vendors is a lot less now because there are off-the-shelf um, e-commerce uh, technology solutions in order to calculate and collect sales taxes. So you can you can uh, um, buy software uh, that, that can kind of plug into your, uh, your e-commerce website and uh, allow it to calculate sales taxes. And also there's been some movement toward harmonization between different states and across the, and, and between states and localities to try and um, have a little more uniformity over how um, uh, how various different goods are categorized in terms of uh, um, uh, what type of sales taxes is paid on them. That's still only very partial, and there's a lot of differences from state to state and even within states. But it, there's at least been movement toward that direction. Now, the argument um, on the other side, the, 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 one of the, the main arguments, is uh, it's something called uh, stare decisis. That's just the fancy legal term for uh, respecting existing precedents for the idea that precedents should be allowed to, to stand um, uh, and and the argument here is there's there's a few arguments, but I, I, as I mentioned, this is under the the, the dormant commerce clause. Now, um, even though the dormant commerce clause, this idea that, that states can't act um, uh, to impede or obstruct interstate commerce, even when Congress hasn't acted, that even though it's kind of derived from this constitutional um, uh, constitutional provision, um, in this area, Congress has the authority to step in and and override any of these things because it's 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 based on the the presumption that Congress wanted to leave the free flow of commerce, um, but Congress can always step in and say 
that they specifically authorize states to do uh, this, for example. Um, and the argument is, especially in those cases where Congress can step in and change things, um, that this uh, respect for president precedent has a is, has a is more force. Um, Congress. Uh, has done nothing to change this in the 50 years or so that the, the this uh, rule has basically been on the on the books, and uh, and so the court shouldn't uh, shouldn't step in to to change uh, the framework when Congress has has shown um, no uh, inclination to do so. And also, they argue that there's a lot of reliance on this by businesses. Businesses have invested and designed their their business models on the basis of this uh, understanding, including things like their location of physical facilities and and their e-commerce inf- infrastructure. Um, there's also been some interesting recent, more recent shifts in e-commerce. Uh, it's been noted that there's, there's a renewed importance of, of physical location by many, uh, businesses. So it, it used to be the case that, um, uh, big, uh, online retailers like Amazon were very careful about where they located their, their warehouses because they wanted to avoid placing those warehouses in states that collect sales taxes. So they didn't have a physical, um, uh, location requiring them to collect sales taxes. Now, due to the customer's demand for prompt delivery and the much more uh, focus on on very short um, uh, same-day delivery, uh, next-day delivery, things like that for, for various uh, types of products, um, physical location has been much more important. Amazon... Um, now uh has uh, has uh, physical facilities in many more locations uh amazon has also started opening physical locations they have actual amazon retail stores and they recently purchased a uh, whole foods to enter into the uh the uh, supermarket um business and that gives them even more physical locations and amazon uh now collects sales tax in every taxing jurisdiction so while many people think of this uh quill issue as as a as a amazon thing whether amazon collects tax amazon in fact already does collect tax and they wouldn't be directly affected by this change at least for their own sales um and there's also been a large entrance of uh major brick and mortar uh businesses into the e-commerce space so you know huge e-commerce sites e-commerce sites include for example Walmart and Target which obviously have physical locations everywhere um and uh, it, i by one count 19 of the top 20 e-commerce sites um have physical presences such that that they already collect sales taxes in every taxing jurisdiction so really this is more about the smaller scale um, sellers, those are the, 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 the people who are not currently covered, um, by the physical presence requirement. Um, and so the basic, uh, legal argument, argument is that the, by South Dakota is that the physical presence rule is at odds with the Supreme Court's general dormant commerce clause rules. That the usual test is whether a state is discriminating against out of state businesses or if they're placing undue burdens on interstate commerce. And, uh, and according to South Dakota, under that typical rule, um, this tax, uh, the imposition of these taxes would be perfectly fine. Um, the, the Wayfair, the company that's, uh, that's been challenging this, uh, this tax argues, um, they, they, they make several arguments. First, they, they say that, in fact, that this, uh, the argument that, the um, the, uh, Software solutions uh, solve the the burden problem is is not true that there still is a very significant compliance burden. There's something like twelve thousand different taxing jurisdictions in the United States, and uh, this is from their brief. They say including not only cities and counties but also parishes, stadium districts, transportation districts, water districts, scientific and cultural facilities districts, and police jurisdictions, among others, which often do not correspond with zip codes or even municipal or county boundaries. Um, and they are uh, note that there are also very different product definitions 
definitions from state to state. Uh, some states have a number of different categories of uh, goods that, that have um, different uh, tax treatment, and those categories are not consistent from state to state. They have different exemptions, different definitions of exemptions, and different rules um, that have to be followed as far as documentation for for when uh, a particular uh, purchaser, like a charity, is exempt from sales tax. There's different tax holiday rules that from state to state and even within states. And also there's very difficult um, questions about the sourcing of online services and digital products to a particular taxing jurisdiction. So when someone um, purchases, uh, a, for example, just a, a purely digital product, a, a song or a, a, a game or something like that, um, how do you decide where that um, is for pur- purposes of, ta- of uh, taxing it? Um, or a cloud computing service, uh, for another example, where, where does that exist for purposes of taxing? And that, that's a kind of an unsolved pro- problem. Um, in most, uh, uh, many states, uh, don't, um, tax many services for, for this very purpose, but South Dakota has stepped into, uh, demanding, uh, tax on, uh, uh, internet services. Um, and so, so they, they argue that this, this is the significant compliance burden. Uh, and they also push back on the argument that uh, um, there won't be this uh, retroactivity problem that they say that uh, several states have already brought actions seeking back taxes under the same theory that South Dakota is putting forth here. So just because South Dakota has this protection doesn't mean that every place will. So they've raised these various arguments, uh, but mostly they're relying on this uh, stare decisis, this the precedent argument. But that's uh, that's the basic um, uh, arguments going uh, back and forth in that case. So moving on, the second case that will be heard on Tuesday next week is called Lamar Archer and Coffrin LLP v. Appling. And this is a, a bankruptcy case. Um, it's about a specific provision of, of bankruptcy that uh, um, it's an exception to um, the discharge of debts in bankruptcy. Now, the basic idea of bankruptcy is that when someone files for bankruptcy, the, bankrupt- the, the process is, uh, is designed to identify all of the, um, the, the, the debts satisfy some portion of those debts by liquidating assets and then discharge the rest of the debts to, to give the, the debtor a fresh start. Um, but there's exceptions and certain things are not dischargeable. And the an issue here is a provision of the uh, bankruptcy code that says basically, that says there's no discharge. And here I'll, I'll read part of the provision. No discharge for money, property, services, or an extension, renewal, or refinancing of credit to the extent obtained by false pretenses, a false representation, or actual fraud, other than a statement respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition. So the general idea here is if you have a, a fraudulent debt, um, it can't be discharged. So so if you, you have a debt that it's, uh, um, it's obtained by fraud, then you can't discharge it. You, you keep that even after the bankruptcy um, uh, proceedings are finished, you still owe that money and it, and it doesn't get wiped away. But there's an exception and that exception is when the fraud was respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition. Now, why did this exception exist? Well, um, what the, 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 uh, the, the parties say is basically uh, there was a concern in Congress about a practice by lenders uh, who would induce a false statement about finances in order to basically shield themselves from having the debt discharged in bankruptcy. So that they were, they were going to lend money to someone uh, for a mortgage or for something else or whatever, and they would encourage the borrower 
to make what they knew to be a false statement about the borrower's financial condition to to claim they had more assets than they did or more ability to pay back than they did so that if the the borrower ever uh, declared bankruptcy the the uh the lender could then come in and say oh this this is uh, non-dischargeable because of the fraud so this exception apparently was placed in there for that purpose so the question here is what counts as a um, false statement respecting the debtor's financial condition. What about fraud that's related to the overall financial condition, um, but uh, that isn't directly about that overall financial condition, but is related or implicates it? So here, the issue was a false statement about an anticipated tax refund uh, in order to get a extension of credit. Here, here's the the basic uh, facts here. The, uh, the, the Appling, that's the, the debtor here, uh, retained a law firm for litigation uh, related to a business that he owned. He fell behind on his monthly payments to the law firm. And at one point in discussions with the firm about he being behind on these payments, he claimed that he was expecting a tax refund of about $100,000 from an amended tax filing he had made. And he said he was basically had earmarked this tax refund to pay uh, legal fees. And then he strung the firm along for a while as they, as they, pressed him on it. In fact, he did receive a tax refund, but it was only about $60,000, not the hundred he had claimed. And he um, immediately spent that $60,000 on other business expenses, didn't use it to um, uh, pay back the firm. So the law firm sued um, and and uh, and Appling had filed for bankruptcy. A- Appling um, argued that uh, the debt to the firm was uh, dischargeable in bankruptcy. The firm said, no, it's a fraudulent debt. Um, so it's not dischargeable. Appling said, no, the fraud was related to his financial state. Um, it was respecting his financial condition. So that falls under that exception. Uh, it is dischargeable. And the firm argues, no, it was related to a specific source of funds, the tax refund. It wasn't related to your overall financial condition. So it doesn't fit within that exception. Now, Appling argues in this case that this broad reading of the exception serves the purposes of, of the act. The, the whole reason the firm cares about the refund, cared about the refund uh, and the size of the refund is because they cared about Appling's overall financial state. Um, the, the, that was a, a data point that, that this $100,000 he was going to be receiving, uh, allegedly, um, that, that, uh, gave the, uh, the law firm information about his financial condition, the, his ability to, to pay the fees that, uh, that he owed them. Um, and Appling argues that the, that the, the firm is seeking an end run around another provision. Now I mentioned that, um, there's this exception um, for fraudulent debts, but not uh, fraudulent debts relating to respecting the financial condition. There's another provision of this, the bankruptcy code immediately following it um, that that also uh, makes uh, non-dischargeable um, uh, debt that was uh, secured by the use of a statement in writing, a materially false statement in writing respecting the debtor's financial condition um, on which the creditor... Uh, relied um, that was made with intent to deceive. So it covers basically the same thing, but it requires a statement in writing. Now, um, that didn't exist in this case. Uh, there was no, um, not, uh, Appling had put nothing in writing about this supposed $100,000 uh, refund. So under this other uh, provision, it wouldn't qualify. It would, there's no statement in writing, so it wouldn't qualify there. And Appling's arguing, basically, they're trying to do an end run around that by reading the um, ex- the uh, the exception uh, to non-dischargeability for uh, statements about a financial condition, reading that incredibly narrowly 
um, to to uh, cause this to still be non-dischargeable when normally they, they would have to jump through these other hoops, including uh, having it in writing. And they argue that this case is a good illustration of why these requirements are important. Um, here, the entire case uh, ended up turning on conflicting testimony from uh, Lamar, one of the partners at the law firm, and Appling about a 10-year-old conversation where this uh, this uh, tax refund was discussed. And they gave uh, conflicting testimony about what exactly was said in that conversation. Um, and so that, that that's just an illustration here of, of why having something in writing would have made that clear and not had to rely on such um, uh, just uh, tenuous evidence. Um, and... Um, Appling also argues that that the, the law firm's uh, uh, position uh, requires a a, a, uh, a difficult line drawing issue. That the, the law firm concedes that a sufficiently detailed listing of someone's assets and liabilities would count as a statement respecting financial condition. So the question is, how detailed does it have to be in order to um, to to qualify? And here, uh, Appling actually says Lamar knew the full financial condition. All the uh, all of his, all of Appling's wealth was tied up in this business that, uh, that the law firm had been hired to to deal with, and his only other asset was this uh, tax refund. So in effect, he had given them his entire financial situation. So he says that's his basic per, um, position. The law firm, on the other hand, argues that this very specific fraud about specific assets and things shouldn't be swept into this broad provision. They say that there's a general provision in, in bankruptcy that bankruptcy is supposed to only protect the honest debtor and that when Congress made an exception to that, it should be treated pretty narrowly. And this is, here's a quote from their brief. They say Appling's position would cover, quote, lies about whether one owns an asset offered for collateral, lies about how much that asset is worth, lies about whether the asset is unencumbered, lies about the existence or non-existence of specific debts, and so on. Any such statement, so long as it was made orally, is exempt from the anti-discharge rule. So they're, they're arguing this just covers so much dishonest behavior that, that Congress never would have wanted to be exempt from the rule against discharging fraudulent debts. And they argue that there's also a line drawing pro- problem under Appling's rule, that this broad reading of what is respecting financial condition would encompass um, potentially any type of fraud. For example, a debtor's statement that they they have a particular pr- professional license, which affects the the uh, you know uh, uh, the income stream that they they're going to have, which would affect their financial condition, or the fact that a debtor uh, is employed in a particular manner, has some some uh, certain source of uh, of income, um, would would also affect their financial condition. And so they say that, that this just uh, raises its own line drawing issue. So that's the issue in that case that the court's going to have to decide. So moving on, uh, two more cases that the court's going to hear on Wednesday. I'll try and go through each of these quickly. The first case on Wednesday is called Washington v. United, v. United States. And this is a case about, um, uh, it's a Indian, uh, Indian tribe, uh, a, a treaty. It's a, a series of treaties in 1854 and 1855 that the United States made with various, uh, Pacific Northwest Indian tribes. And as part of these treaties, they guaranteed, the, the United States guaranteed that these Indian tribes access to fishing uh, fishing uh, rights on uh, on uh, rivers within the uh, territory, and specifically uh, to salmon runs. And um, the some of the, the language from these treaties reads uh, that they had quote right of taking fish at all usual and accustomed grounds and stations in common with all citizens. Um, and this this fishing right was actually one of the primary benefits these uh, Indian tribes received in exchange for giving up uh, land rights. Now, th- this was a suit uh, brought by the, the federal government and more than 20 uh, Indian tribes in the Pacific Northwest. 
in order to enforce these treaty rights. Um, and it, this, this dispute has been going on for, for decades now. Um, but based on previous decisions, uh, it's basically, it's undisputed that the tribes are entitled to access to fishing grounds. And, uh, it's been, uh, uh, held that they're, they're entitled to up to, up to 50% of the annual salmon harvest. Now, what's at issue here is that the Ninth Circuit, uh, Court of Appeals had held that the treaty also guarantees the protection of the fisheries themselves. In other words, the salmon population. There's a, there's an obligation not just to uh, allow the tribes to have access to some portion of the, of the salmon harvest, but there's an obligation to, um, to not deplete, not, uh, deplete the salmon population. Um, and here the argument, the argument, uh, was, and the decision below was that the state of Washington had played a role in the, uh, the, um, decrease of the salmon population and that obligated the state to take steps to uh, increase the salmon uh, population in order to comply with these treaty rights. And specifically, the specific issue here is state roads and the culverts under these roads that allow uh, streams uh, to and rivers to to pass uh, through the roads. And the that many of these culverts uh, and, and the, that were uh, uh, installed when, when uh, roads were built throughout the state of Washington, um, don't allow fish to pass through. And so what happened was the, the lower courts ordered the state of Washington to replace culverts throughout a large uh, um, portion of Washington state um, th- in order to allow f- these uh, salmon to, to pass through uh, across these, uh, these uh, pa- th- past these roads unobstructed. And Washington says that basically there's more than 800 of these culverts in the treaty territory that are, that are covered by this order. And it would ultimately be cost more than $2 billion to replace all of these with these, um, uh, uh, larger, more state of the art culverts that allow uh, fish to pass through from one side to the other. Um, and it applies to, to culverts on every state road within the treaty territory. Although it does not apply to federal, local, tribal, or pri- private culvert, only ones on state roads. Um, now, Washington has, uh, the state of Washington has a number of arguments in, in this case. The first, there's an argument based on the treaty right in the first place. And Washington basically says the, the treaty right, um, this, this uh, um, idea that, that uh, they have to maintain the, uh, the, uh, the salmon population doesn't have any basis in the actual treaty language. Uh, and, and this kind of has huge implications for all water use in many northwestern states if they, if they have this general obligation to maintain the salmon population under these treaties. The United States and the tribes, on the other hand, argue that the treaty basically assumed the existence of harvestable fish. The treaty signatories intended this protection to exist, and that Washington's position would basically allow it to gut the treaty right by completely, you know, stopping the flow of fish in all the streams in the state. Um, and that, um, there are, uh, precedents, uh, from previous cases that hold that, uh, when, uh, fishing rights are at issue, that it includes the protection against the substantial depletion of the fish population. So, so, um, that, that's the, the, on the, on whether this basic underlying right exists. But part of the argument in this case is about the remedy, is about what's been ordered here. Um, and the, the, uh, Washington argues, uh, basically they make very specific arguments about these, um, these, uh, culverts. They, they argue that this order, which requires them to replace all culverts within the treaty territory, uh, requires them to replace culverts that will make no difference whatsoever to the salmon population. Uh, for example, on streams where there's upstream or downstream blockage of the stream by private, private culverts, uh, culverts that are not on state 
roads that are on private land um, where the, because of this private blockage, there's no way for salmon to get through anyway. So replacing the state uh, culverts makes no difference at all. And they claim that 90% of the state culverts uh, are either upstream or downstream of non-state barriers that uh, block the fish from going through. Um, so, And they say there can't be any violation of the treaty rights if there were no salmon were able to pass through to begin with. And they also argue this basically wastes money that could go to more effective salmon recovery efforts. Um, and they also argue that there's insufficient proof of causation of the decline of the population, that, that these culverts really are responsible for the decline of the salmon population or that replacement of them would really increase the salmon population. Um, and then finally, they argue that that, that, that uh, this remedy, this injunction, ignores the, the equities. Basically, they, they argue that um, the federal government was heavily involved in this road construction. They they uh, set requirements for road culverts and they improved the specific culverts that Washington used uh, decades ago. And then they've turned around now and sued the state of Washington uh, to force them to replace them all. So they say that the government... Um, uh, had a, had a role to play in this happening, so so it's not fair for all of the costs to be allocated to Washington to bear all of this burden. Um, the United States and the tribes have have come back on the other side and said that there's there is ample evidence in the ref- record that the culverts cause the depletion and that replacement of them will improve the the habitat, and that this is just a effort by Washington uh, to try and uh, um, uh, relitigate that issue um, after the fact of the Supreme Court, um, and and uh, so so that's uh, that's the issue here. And it'll be interesting to see whether the court is more interested in the the basic treaty issue of what does this treaty right um, uh, require and 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 what uh, what what is fairly implied by the uh, the language of these treaties, or if they're interested in digging into this remedy issue about the scope of the injunction here. Uh, there's one interesting note about this I mentioned I, uh, previous week. Um, Justice Kennedy is recused from this case due to his involvement in, in this uh, in this case at an earlier stage over 30 years ago when he was a judge on the Ninth Circuit. So the only only eight justices hearing this particular case. So now I'll move on to the last um, last case uh, of the week of next week. This is a case called Lagos v. United States, and it's a case about the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act. Now, this is a, this is a federal law that requires the um, victims of certain crimes. Uh, there, it requires the uh, um, per, the the, uh, the convict, the person convicted of the crime to pay restitution to the victims for certain categories of damage. And there's four specifically defined categories, but one is relevant here. It reads, lost income and necessary childcare, transportation, and other expenses incurred during participation in the investigation or prosecution of the offense or attendance at proceedings related to the offense. So um, that's, that's the provision here. Now, here are the facts of this case. Um, the, the criminal defendant, his name is uh, Sergio Lagos. He was convicted of wire fraud for deceiving the General Electric Capital Corporation um, about business income that he had in order to obtain loans. So basically, he um, he owned some companies that had revolving loan a revolving loan with GE Capital. He misled GE Capital about his business income in order to increase the size of these revolving loans. Now, eventually, the fraud was revealed, and GE Capital spent money investigating it. They hired forensic experts, lawyers, consultants, etc. Um, and then also these Lagos's companies declared bankruptcy and GE Capital spent money participating in these bankruptcy proceedings. And the court below awarded 
restitution to GE Capital under this Mandatory Victims Restitution Act for the legal expert and consulting fees incurred by GE Capital investigating the fraud and for their legal fees in the bankruptcy proceedings. Um, and it amounted to almost $5 million uh, combined for the investigation and legal fees. Um, now, the important thing is these fees were not um, related to the government's criminal investigation. These related to GE's own criminal investigation and the proceeding involved was not the um, the criminal proceeding, the criminal uh, uh, prosecution. It was the bankruptcy proceedings. So Lagos's argument here is that this just this is just doesn't um, doesn't fit with the language of the Mandatory Victims uh, Restitution Act when it refers to um, participation in the investigation or prosecution. It's a, it refers to the investigation, the investigation of the offense, which is referring to the government's investigation. When it says the investigation of the offense, and it says the prosecution of the offense, it's clearly referring to the criminal prosecution. It doesn't. It's not talking about private actions that are not part of the government's prosecution. It also says um, during participation in the investigation or prosecution. So they say GE's investigation actually happened earlier. It happened before the government's investigation. And that just doesn't doesn't comply with the literal terms of the statute. It's not during the investigation or prosecution. Um, they also argue um, that the, the there's language uh, where where it describes the the categories, the types of um, of, uh, of of damage. They say lost income and necessary childcare, transportation, and other expenses. Um, there's there's a, a legal principle. This is a, a canon of interpretation. That just means uh, it's a rule of thumb for interpreting uh, legal language. Um, there's there's a rule. It has this uh, Latin name. It's referred to a justus generis. Um, it's just a that's just the kind of Latin term that's applied to this. But it's a uh, um, that means it's just law Latin for the same kind. And the idea here is when you have a general term. In this case, it's a term like um, other expenses. Just general term. When it follows a list of specific terms, then the general term should be interpreted and kind of limited to things of the same type. So here it says. Lost income and necessary child care, transportation, and other expenses. In that context, the argument is other expenses should be interpreted to mean these kind of uh, costs related to the actual physical attendance of proceedings or meetings with uh, with the government investigators. So it's the, the actual costs of, of, of going and physically being present and, and participating in that way. It doesn't mean it should sweep in anything that could possibly be an other expense. Um, and so so that's, that's the... Uh, the basic arguments on the, the language of the statute. They also, um, Lagos also argues that, that there's other restitution statutes uh, where Congress uses much, much broader language uh, than, than in this one. So Congress kind of knows how to be much broader when it wants to. But here it limited it to four specific categories, so it shouldn't be assumed to cover everything. And finally, there's another uh, canon, another one of these kind of rules of interpretation. It's known as the rule of lenity which specifically applies to criminal prosecutions. And it's the idea that when there's ambiguity or unclarity in criminal um, laws, that they should be resolved against criminal liability. So that criminal, uh, unclear criminal prohibitions should be interpreted narrowly. And it is part of it. Part of this, the reason for this is, is the need, the special need in when someone's going to be criminally liable for, for fair notice of what's covered and what, what, um, what someone will be liable for, and also to make sure that it's the legislators, the legislature that's driving 
criminal punishment and not courts that are deciding what is or is not punishable when it's in the criminal realm. So those are the basic arguments that are made. On the other side, the government responds back and just says that there's lots of reasonable expenses related that people would incur related to participation in investigations um, that wouldn't be covered potentially under Lagos's arguments. For example, uh, would it cover legal uh, expenses related to bringing an attorney to meetings with government investigators? If you read that uh, the types of things uh, that, that are covered under other expenses too narrowly, that would be excluded. Um, it also argues that different restitution statutes just use very different language and, and, uh, and, um, each one kind of needs to be interpreted on its own. You can't, you can't necessarily read, uh, the fact that one used broad language and others title categories can't be used to infer that one is necessarily narrower or broader. Um, and they also argue that the rule of lenity just, uh, shouldn't apply here. Um, because, uh, under the government's argument, there really is no ambiguity after you apply the kind of normal approach to statutory interpretation, which allows you to give this very broad, um, uh, understanding of other expenses. So the, that's the court will have to decide uh, how, how broadly to read other expenses here and whether these um, extensive uh, costs related to uh, private investigation can fit within this uh, Mandatory Victims Restitution Act. So that's uh, next week's cases. That brings us to the end of uh, this live stream episode. Our next live stream will be a week from today. It's Thursday, April 19th, uh, again at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, but you can always uh, check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, uh, next week's live stream, there's a the court has its uh, next private conference tomorrow. That's Friday, April 13th. So there's a chance of newly granted cases in Monday morning's order list. Um, there's also a pretty high likelihood that we'll get at least one or more opinions uh, next week, just because the court has a big backlog of cases and we're starting to run out of time toward the end of the term. So if that happens, we don't know that it necessarily will happen, but if the court issues any opinions, it'll likely be on Tuesday or Wednesday next week, uh, likely at 10 a.m. immediately before the day's oral arguments. Um, so if there are newly granted cases or opinions, we'll definitely discuss those on next week's live stream. But also the following week, that's the week of April 23rd, the court will hear oral argument in another six cases. They have three on that Monday, two on Tuesday, and one last case on Wednesday. So next live week's live stream, I hope to preview each of those six cases for the last week of the terms oral arguments. The highest profile case uh, of that that uh, next week is one I already mentioned earlier, the Trump v. Hawaii, which is the travel ban litigation. Um, there's always a possibility of emergency orders or other interesting developments. So um, we'll uh, just keep an eye out and uh, discuss whatever comes up. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to Mike at countingtofive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.